So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. That's really, in my view, part of the whole corporate governance mechanism. In other words, it starts with all managers have to be assigned the task of mentoring their employees. And then you have to make sure that they're doing it. You, you have to measure the performance of their man of the managers and reward them for doing that. And that's the way. And then you, you have to have this culture piece where it just gets in the fabric of the organization. So again, welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jerry Zimmerman. Tell us about this new book you've got coming out. It's uh, called Relentless, the Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices, and it will be out and available January 12th. Okay. Uh, The one question people ask is, how in the world did I ever come about to writing this book? And uh, it's really the convergence of my academic writing and teaching on the general field of uh, corporate governance and my avocation with organized crime growing up watching the Godfather movies, uh, Goodfellows, Sopranos, on and on and on, it always struck me that these movies usually end badly for the bad guys. But when you open up the newspaper, you still see that the crime bosses in New York City are still there. They're still being arrested. And so the question is, what allows them to survive? And in particular, corporate governance has to do with how do you get self-interested people uh, motivated? How do you attract them, retain them, give them incentives to pursue their strat- the strategy of the firm rather than their own narrow self-interest? And both lawful and unlawful companies have this same problem. And so it became a fascination of mine to understand the various corporate governance policies they were using to allow some of these organizations to survive over 100 years. So that was the genesis of the book and hooked up with uh, Daniel, a former student of mine, and he got interested and was a big help in adding a lot of knowledge about corporate culture and the cultures of these organized crime syndicates is absolutely fascinating. Well, I've got so many questions, but let's back up just for a minute and and tell people about your teaching career, and you've authored many other books, and, and give people a little bit of your background. I got my PhD uh, in economics and business at Berkeley, University of California, and then went to the University of Rochester, the Simon School, 
in upstate New York, where I taught, did research, wrote a number of academic textbooks, did a bunch of consulting, did some expert witnessing, and started a journal, published a lot of papers, and and had a great career until one day I, my wife and I decided to come back home to Denver, which is where our family is. So about the last five years, I've been out of the classroom, but still actively researching and, and writing Relentless. <laughs> and if I understand it, this journal that you started is one of the most cited journals in the field, isn't it? It is. It's uh, the Journal of uh, Accounting and Economics, and it turned out to be very, very successful. What do you think, you know, there's a lot of journals out there. What do you think makes a journal successful? Why, why did yours catch on where others didn't? It was the, well, going back a little bit, in the mid to late 70s, there was a real transformation in business schools where a lot of economists uh, started moving uh, their research into understanding things like marketing and accounting and financial economics. And I was very fortunate to be at, at the University of Rochester, which was at the epicenter of this uh, revolution. And we were able to attract in, in papers that m- me and my colleague who started the journal found interesting. And we just poured a lot of resources into this. And uh, what makes uh, a journal successful is that other people read it and cite the papers in there. And so you have to find good papers, make them better, and make them even better yet. And we were very fortunate to be able to do that. What do you think that other journals are missing? Why aren't other ones? I mean, it sounds so simple when you say it that way. Why aren't the other ones able to accomplish that? Well, I don't want to get too too down the rabbit hole here, but a lot of journals are run by associations like uh, the American Economics Association, and they rotate the editors every two or three years, have, have a new editor. And so those editors don't have the same kind of long-run perspective that we ended up having with our journal, which it was not an association journal. It was It's published by Elsevier, which is the the largest scientific publisher in the world. And we were editors of that for over 30, 35 years. And so over that time, you you learn who are the good referees and you learn how to spot mistakes and how to make things better. I love it. Well, I I really want to talk about the book. It all all comes down to corporate governance. (laughs) the association journals have a different corporate governance mechanism than we had and that that really was at the heart of our success Mm. it's fascinating how often structure is this invisible disadvantage or invisible advantage isn't it it is have you ever heard of uh alfred chandler no he's a very famous uh, business economics professor who actually wrote the seminal work on that. It was about structure and strategy and started this whole, well, not started, but certainly contributed. But it's to your point that how you structure things can cause either great success or failure. And we just saw an example of bad corporate governance in the Wells Fargo incidents. They're branch banks, and they gave all the branch managers incentives to open up new accounts. And they opened up a lot of new accounts, but they didn't ask their customers if they could do that. And they ended up 
in great trouble. Yeah. Well, going to the book here, what you know, what we're focusing on a bit, kind of the next theme we're doing for the next episodes of the show is advice for how business owners can get the most for their company when they sell their companies and you know, what do they need to change or fix so that when they do, you know, sell it to the kids or the employees or to a private equity group, whatever this transition is that they can get the most for it. I'd love, I'd love for you to teach a principle from, from the mobsters or the criminal organizations that can be used in a good way, in a, in a positive organization. Okay. Well, one of the things that we see in all, all of these criminal organizations that we look at, and in particular, the mafia and the Sinaloa cartels were extremely good at seizing on new opportunities and, and uh, strategies that, for example, when New York State and New York City started raising cigarette taxes, what did we observe happening? Well, we observed that these resourceful and relentless mobsters figured out that they could supply cheaper cigarettes to New Yorkers by smuggling in low-tax cigarettes from other states. And they, and they seize on these opportunities very quickly. And so one of the takeaways from, from the book is that there's the world is constantly changing, either because of technology or politics or geopolitical factors. As these external factors come along, and it could be the pandemic. The pandemic is a classic example of an external shock to the environment and to the companies. And, and if you want to sell your company for a higher price, you, you have to seize current opportunities. You have to constantly and relentlessly ask yourself, do I have the right strategy in light of what I see happening now? So we see commercial real estate property falling in value all over the, the country. How do, is that going to affect my business if I'm a real estate company, if I'm a bank? And so the first thing you got to do is you got to ask yourself, what, what strategy do I have? And it, is my current strategy the right one? And once you address that question, now you have to say, okay, if I'm changing my strategy, how do I have to change the incentives in the company and the delegation of authority? Who's in charge of what? And the corporate culture that I have in order to capture or implement the new strategy. And so if, if you're trying to sell the company, the, the owner, the, the prospective buyers are going to kick the tires and they're going to kick the tires and you got to convince them that you're on the right path, that we know what we're doing, we understand our customers, here's what our strategy is. And oh, by the way, I've got a motivated workforce that can implement that strategy for you. So thinking about a potential tension point there, so many businesses, they're able to grow and scale and get as big as they've gotten because they've institutionalized processes and, and they've, you know, they've optimized their existing processes. Do you have any advice for this idea of navigating the, the optimization and, and growing of a margin by optimizing an existing process versus continually looking for more and embracing the change and spotting the opportunities and, and quite frankly, changing those optimized processes to now take care of new opportunities? Can you talk about any ideas for business owners as they try to navigate those things that might be pulling in different directions? Well, I'm a big believer in if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
I'm a big believer in if you're growing and you're you're doing things right, don't go out and, and dilute your your efforts by going out and finding other things. It's often very difficult to move from doing one thing where you're doing it extremely well to trying to do something that may appear to be somewhat related, but you don't have the core competencies there. And the classic example is Eastman Kodak. Being in Rochester for over 45 years, I watched Eastman Kodak employment in that city fall from about 60,000 down to three or 4,000. And it wasn't because they didn't know digital imaging was coming. They knew it was coming. They tried to adapt, but they couldn't. They were like the, the champion basketball, professional basketball team that one day decided that they wanted to go in and play football. Well, you can maybe have the absolute best athletes to play basketball, but they're not the right athletes to play football. And that was Kodak's problem. They were not an electronics company. They were a chemical company that was good at coding things. They coded film and they coded paper. And to do that well, they had to have the top mechanical engineers and the top chemists in the world. Those people were very good at doing that. They just didn't know how to build a digital camera. And so my long-winded answer, stick to your knitting. Understand what your core competency is. And don't, don't be overly optimistic that just because I'm good at X, I can become good at Y. You know, it's interesting because it takes a certain amount of humility and objectivity to come to that conclusion. I was reading the book by the CEO of Netflix, and, and he talked as well as one of his top executives with, in her new book a couple of years ago, Powerful, when they were making the shift from sending out DVDs, mailing them to people's houses, to becoming a streaming organization. And when they had to get honest that the guys who had built the system for distributing DVDs were not, they were not the technical guys to build a streaming business. And quite frankly, those guys were offended. You know, well, we did such a good job. Why don't you think we can do this? And they said, well, like, we've got to do this fast and you don't have 20 years expertise in that. So we're going to go get the pro athlete who's good at that sport, who's going to, and we love you guys. We're going to compensate you. But we're, we're also going to go get the pro athlete at that sport for this new sport we're going to play. And they went and got people who can build server farms and stuff for streaming. And, and Netflix did make that transition, right? But to your point, you know, they had the right seat, right butts in the right seats on the bus, right? Well, but they also had one other thing. They had the front end built. They had the website built. And they had the ability to get the content. And the only thing they had to change was the back end of the business. Instead of uh, putting all of the, the, the content in envelopes and sending them through the mail, they now just had to find another delivery system. And that's very different than what Eastman Kodak mm. uh, do, where they literally had to change all of their processes. Yeah. You know, Daniel, when I interviewed him about the book, he uh, he ended up giving a quote from Mark Cuban that was something along the lines of, if you don't have a repeatable way to acquire new customers, you don't have a company, you have a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> and you think about, you're right, what a huge advantage for Netflix that they had this way, you know, this repeatable way for acquiring new customers and that they were just swapping out the back end. That's an interesting observation. Well, let me give you another example most people don't, don't realize is the transformation IBM made from building uh, com big computer systems 
to a consulting business. And again, over, from the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s, in order for IBM to install these large mainframes, they had to have an army of computer engineers, systems engineers, people who could go into a client and lay out the processes for how do we bring in this big mainframe. And so when the mainframe business went away, the only thing they were left with was this army of consultants. And so they became a consulting business. It, they didn't trans, transform themselves fundamentally. They just clevered off a part of the business that they didn't want to be in anymore, or for the most part. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting observation. So thinking back to this, what can we learn from these terrible gangs and mobster organizations? What what aspect of embracing change and, and getting on new opportunities quickly do you think can be transferred to businesses? Well, we talk in the book about cor the corporate governance, and, and that's really what the book is all about. It is how do you provide incentives? How do you measure performance? How do you delegate responsibility within the organization to affect a new strategy? And the way the mob mafia did it and is that they ran a very decentralized business. They were basically running a franchise business, if you want to think of it that way, where they, they had made men, people who were formally admitted to the family, and each of these made men were out on the streets with their own crew of non-made men or associates, and they were looking every day to run some scam. And it was very decentralized. And what made it work was that the incentives were so strong that they knew that they could keep 75 or 80 percent of whatever they ill-gotten gains, whether it was from gambling or from prostitution or heists. And so when you give people very, very strong incentives, it's like you're, you're running a franchise for a McDonald's. If you own the franchise, you're going to work a lot harder to make sure that your McDonald's runs right than if you were just merely a manager. And so they had these, this very strong corporate governance system. And, and wrapped around that, and Daniel talked, I'm sure, about the, the incredibly strong corporate culture that in a lot of these organizations, it wasn't the monetary incentives, it was the cultural incentives, the non-pecuniary incentives that people were given, that they didn't want to be kicked out of the bloods of Crips because that was their identity. They didn't want to lose the patch, the Hell's Angels jacket, because that patch gave them enormous prestige that they didn't want to lose. And so part of the, in the incentive structures in a lot of very successful companies is just being a member of that organization, saying that I work for Amazon or I work for Google, bestows a lot of non-pecuniary income to those people. Yeah, when you think about when you think about a business environment, what are some ways that that you think business owners could be embracing that more? Uh, well, I think what the, what you really have to understand this is first principles of economics is you really have to understand that people care about themselves more than they do about running your business, that they're self-interested. And, and, and self-interest is much more than just making a buck. It is very complicated. People have, have unsatiable wants and they want lots of different things and they make trade-offs among those wants. 
They make work-life balance trade-offs. People trade off leisure for work and vice versa. Some people trade off good-paying jobs for service jobs. And so what you really have to understand as a small business owner is not just what your customers want, but what your workers, your employees want. You want to give them a, a work environment that makes them want to come there and work hard every day. And the the fear of losing that really fun job is going to be as much a motivator as another $10 a week in the paycheck. You know, it's interesting when you think about incentives and, and, you know, when, when businesses get a little bigger and the owner doesn't necessarily know everybody by name per se, or, or even if they know them by name, you know, the organization's just so big, you don't have the chance to work with anyone. You know, it, it starts getting over those levels, right? Yeah. And there's such temptations to, to think about people in terms of their job title instead of as an individual. Or there's temptations to go, well, I'm paying them for that. They should do that, right? And, and yet those organizations that can make it feel personal right down to the frontline folks and can think about them as a holistic person instead of just a a transaction. They do have that better loyalty that, you know, it's contagious for more employees to want to work there, customers to want to buy from you. And yet it's not always done, is it? It's very hard to do. Surveys that I've seen say they range from seven, five to seven out of 10 employees hate their jobs. And so, you know, it, it, it's easy to, to say, yeah, make the, your company a fun place to work. But it's, it's really difficult to do that in any meaningful way. Yeah. So knowing that, you know, somebody in Silicon Valley who has catered lunch and ping pong tables and bring your dog to work and, you know, the, the media likes to claim that that's what makes people like their jobs. And so for, you know, somebody who's maybe only making 10 or $20 million a year, maybe there's these feelings of, well, we can't afford all those perks. And so they don't even try. What, what advice do you have for folks, you know, more medium-sized businesses who they want to make it somewhere that people want to work, but not necessarily just with, with dollars? It's a great question. It's a, a question that economists have struggled with. And it, it really comes down to all the non-pecuniary factors that go into making up the job. It, it starts at the top of the organization. It, it's, you're really talking about the culture of the company. But it's, it also involves how you design the jobs that you, you know, there's, there's got to be menial jobs in virtually all organizations. Fortunately, a lot of those are, are going to be automated out with robots or AI and things like that. But, you know, there, there's, you know, you got to look at the, all of the, the key tasks. I mean, the way I think about it is, if you start at the, the heart of the problem, which is what is the strategy? What are we trying to accomplish? What is our modus operandi that causes our customers to want to come here? And then from that strategy, there's got to be two or three key things that you have to deliver. And those are the core areas of the company that you really have to have the right people in and running to, to get that across the finish line. And those people have to want to do those tasks. And then they have to make sure they have people under them who will do the, those tasks. And again, it says, how do we provide those incentives? And not just monetary incentives, it is the way you design the jobs. So, you know, in, in instead of having somebody do the same thing day after day after day, 
change it up. You know, a lot of companies have these planning processes, career planning models that younger employees can see where they're going to be 10 years from now. They actually will move people around in, inside there to give them more experiences, more job opportunities, more opportunities for growth. And those are the things that cause people to want to get up in the morning, do a good job, because if I do a good job today, then my boss has told me I'm going to get a better job next month or next year. You know, it does make me think one of my favorite organizations who does that, it's a it's a large food business that most people would recognize. And I signed a bunch of NDAs when I went there, so I can't say who it is, but very manufacturing, very blue collar in most ways, and, and not necessarily the what you would think of as the most fulfilling of, of jobs as a category, right? And yet their average tenure was like 26 years or something for employees. It was just incredible longevity. And one of the things about their culture was exactly what you're talking about of this. Like you had these scheduled meetings where you sat with your manager and were like trying to map out your career. And then every 90 days you're sitting with your manager going through, okay, what did I accomplish in the last 90 days that moved me closer to that promotion? What am I going to do for the next 90 days? And it was like religious. It wasn't just something that get ta- got talked about. So we were doing we were doing an assessment to see if they could win the Shingo Prize for operational excellence. And we went all over these employees, all over the organization, across maybe 450 employees and all sorts of different levels. And people say like, well, I'm, you know, it is great to work here. You know, my boss spent so much time with me so I could get this promotion where I am today. And I've really been working and this is what I'm doing next for my next one. And they had this happiness of this sense of progress, you know? Well, again, that's really, in my view, part of the whole corporate governance mechanism. In other words, it starts with all managers have to be assigned the task of mentoring their employees. And then you have to make sure that they're doing it. You, You have to measure the performance of their man of the managers and reward them for doing that. And that's the way, and then you, you have to have this culture piece where it just gets in the fabric of the organization. So again, I, I think that's another good example of what I view as the general issue of, of good corporate governance. It's, it is how do you provide incentives for people? And this company you're talking about, created enormous incentives for people to want to stay there because they they saw a career path, a fun career path. What's funny is they were just manufacturing. It's just a manufacturing plant. Like fun is such a relative term, right? But they, there's many other things about the culture. You know, their, their operational excellence program, they constantly were asking for suggestions from the team and then actually trying them out. So it wasn't like it went into the abyss of the suggestion box that would never get touched, right? There's, there's other elements, but it was, anyways, it was just kind of inspirational to see like these managers are measured on, are you helping your people make progress like every 90 days, you know? Yeah. Well, tell us another, tell us another principle from the book that from the mobsters and gangbangers that, that can be adapted for business owners today. Well, you know, one, this, this is not an answer to that question, but it is a, probably the, one of the most fascinating factoids we discovered is if you type in a browser, www.relentless.com, you probably won't guess where you would go. Daniel told me this. So um, I, I do know now, but it is an interesting story. So tell people where that goes. It goes to Amazon. Before Jeff Bezos named 
Amazon, Amazon, he actually registered the donate the, the domain name Relentless. He was thinking of calling the company Relentless as a way of capturing the what he really wanted was a relentless focus on the customer. So, you know, that's to me, successful companies and successful mobsters are the ones who are just relentless in in observing a change in the environment and then jumping on it. The and I can numerous examples of that in the book, but when the state of Nevada legalized gambling, the the mafia families back in New York saw this as a golden opportunity to rush in and open casinos. And the way they made money was stealing from the state of Nevada because casino owners every night had to cash count the profits. So they take all the cash back to the counting rooms and they would count it and determine the profits. And then they would pay the state of Nevada their share of it. Well, there was so much cash that the mafia guys were able to bribe the, the Nevada state who were observing the counting. They were bribing them and they were then shipping suitcases of millions of dollars a day back to New York City. And so they, they were just absolutely incredibly relentless in their pursuit of, of, of profits. You know, that, that was one thing. But the other thing that came about from studying these organizations was it really wasn't the monetary incentives that were driving these people. It was the non-pecuniary benefits of belonging to these groups, that there was enormous prestige of being a made man in, in your neighborhood in New York City, that people left you alone. They wouldn't burglarize your car. And so a lot of these guys made a lot of money, but they, they never really spent it in any lavish ways. It, it was just the respect and loyalty that they garnered from being a member of that organization. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, if we really do have systems where we're rewarding team members for spotting opportunities and jumping on them and bringing to, you know, or bringing them to us so we can decide if this is the one to jump on, you know, that together. You know what are we doing? What do, what do our rewards look like? What do our non-monetary rewards and, and potentially monetary? But what does that look like to encourage that and to help them feel part of the family of our business? And you know, it's probably a good question to ask, huh? Well, it goes back to you know another key point of this book, which is our takeaway: is one size doesn't fit all. The thing that has driven me crazy for fifty years is reading a stream of these management guru books that says, here's the secret for good management. All you have to do is go in and do X. Well, X doesn't always apply in every company because every company is different. Every company has a different strategy. And the thing that is important here is in, in the message that we're, we're trying to make is you have to start at the top of the flow chart, as I think of it. And we give you the flow chart in the book. You got to start at the flow chart and say, again, what is my strategy? What are the key things I have to do to execute that strategy? And what kind of people do I need to run that? And so if I'm in a retail clothing company, I'm going to have to have a very different set of employees than if I'm running a server firm. And those 
those different types of people have different preferences. And they're gonna, you really have to understand what people care about. And you have to design the jobs to give them that. And giving ping pong tables may work in a, a, a tech startup, but it's probably not gonna be a very good idea if you are running a DoorDash where all your employees are driving around and can't play ping pong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That personalization aspect is so key. Okay. I, I think you probably saw that when you were doing your M&A business, how hard it is to acquire a company that has a very different culture and how you merge those people in because they have different preferences and you just can't, can't simply copy from what's in company A and think it's going to work in company B. Yeah, you know, there's these interesting reports from people like KPMG that talk about how, you know, maybe 80% of mergers end up not being worth what the acquirer paid for them. Yep. And it really comes down so often that you buy a well-oiled machine that can produce this result and they buy it and change it. And shocker, it doesn't produce the same results anymore. You know, right. you compare that to like Warren Buffett, who, you know, he goes and buys Dairy Queen. He doesn't become the CEO of Dairy Queen. He doesn't merge Dairy Queen into Berkshire Hathaway. He buys a well-run compound interest machine and empowers those leaders to make those, keep making those decisions, right? Right. And I don't know if you followed the case of Bolthouse Farms. It, it was a family-owned business that they sold for $1.3 billion. It, it's a company that invented the little mini carrots. Okay. Uh, and, and in the process of making the carrots, ended up with enormous amounts of carrot juice. Okay. And so they then bottled the carrot juice and they're now in every grocery store in the, in the country. And it, it was a very family run business making lots of money. I think they ended up selling it to one of the big food companies that had it for five years and ended up selling it for 800 million. To wow. That they went in and they, they made changes and they screwed everything up. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Well, th this is great. Let's go for another one. I want to hear another. I want to hear another principle from the mobsters that that we can use in our businesses. Oh, another principle is the another example of relentless pursuit of changes in the environment and jumping on it when the oxycodone coding epidemic was underway. What preceded most of that? Uh, most of those pills were coming out of pill mills in Florida, and Americans were getting addicted to Oxycontin. Well, Guzman, El Chapo Guzman, who was running the, the Sinaloa cartel, was very, he was uneducated. I don't think he went past the sixth grade. He, he was just relentless in understanding what his, his markets were. And he knew that eventually the feds were going to shut down these pill mills. And there were going to be literally millions of addicted Americans looking for an alternative. And he had it. He didn't have it. He had something he knew he could make into it. There was uh, a Mexican uh, heroin that was not very good. So Guzman hires, a not hires, but brings in some Colombian chemists to turn the Mexican bad heroin into what came to be known as China White. And it took him a fair amount of R&D efforts to get this converted. But when the, the pill mills shut down, he was there on the streets with this stuff. 
because he understood the way the markets are changing. And we're seeing that as we go through this pandemic. We know that the world has changed and we're never going to go back to 2019. And so relentless lawful leaders should be thinking today about how to position or reposition our strategy for what's going to be a 2022 world. Yeah, what's an example that comes to mind? Well, where do we think homeschooling is going to be in 2022? And if I'm in the in the education areas, should I be thinking about taking on a strategy of trying to provide high quality educational materials for, for this, what appears to be a large, large looming market for people who are going to be homeschooling? That's just, just one. You know, how quickly are self-driving cars coming along? And what are we going to do with all these parking lots. And maybe I should go into the business of turning parking lots into parks. So you know, the world is changing. It's The pandemic is just one example. But you know, what lawful leaders have to do is, is understand how they can use their core competencies to take advantage of these emerging trends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Utah Transit Authority has been a big client of ours for a number of years. And, you know, I have had different conversations with the CEO about, you know, they're in the business of buses and trains. Well, what happens when, you know, self, you know, self-driving autonomous ride sharing shows up, you know, and right. And, you know, so they were talking about how can they actually, you know, a credit to, to this CEO, Jerry Benson, he's very innovative guy. He was saying, how can we actually use some tax dollars? How can we actually use some of our money? to endorse that in supporting the cause that our state needs, not just our what, not just our organization. And how can we partner with those guys early instead of having them replace us later? And, you know, it's an interesting conversation. It is. And, you know, again, living through 45 years of Kodak, those guys tried everything. They saw this coming. They tried to come out with digital products. They went out and they bought a chemical company. They tried to go into a battery business. They had a program, what they called entrepreneurship program at Kodak, that any manager in Kodak could propose a project and start a new company. And Kodak would be the venture capitalist for it using Kodak technology. And that's where the lithium battery ultralife came out of. They started 14 ventures. All of them failed including ultra-life batteries. They didn't make any money on any of them. Hmm. So as a business consultant, explain that to me. Yeah, what do you think What do you think Kodak could have done to not have the demise they've had? They should have gone private. They should have gone in 1985. They should have gone out, bought up all their shares through a big leverage buyout, and then used their declining cash flows from the from from their existing legacy products, which were declining over time to pay off the debt. But in the meantime, they, the shareholders uh, would have gotten $8 billion as opposed to Kodak wasting it on all of these things that failed. Hmm. Interesting. So this has been a fun conversation. And I, I'm interested, have you, since since telling people about this book, which is 
you know, not typically the the gold standard of how to run your business. Let's let's look to the criminals, right? But yeah. such a fun, such a fun premise. Have you heard of other books like this or other research that other people have done? Like because you're working on it? There's there's a, a very interesting book about pirates that was written by an economist. And off the top of my head, I, I can't uh, get it. I can send it to you. But he looked at the economics of pirates. And again, it was the corporate governance of the pirates that made them so successful because each pirate ship, the pirates themselves would elect the captain. And if the captain wasn't doing a good job, they kill him and get another captain. And they were able to get some of the very best sailors because the military, the British in particular, the French, they, they were just horrible. The captains and the officers mistreated their, their sailors. And so whenever they were captured, the sailors who were well-trained sailors became pirates. And so it's, uh, again, it's... Uh, Is it, could it be the invisible hook, the hidden economics of pirates? That's okay, you found uh, I got to check this one out. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more technically economics. I've done a lot of work trying to de-academic. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll find that the invisible hook is going to be a little bit more technically economic oriented, but it, it, it's an interesting book. I'm sure you've heard of Freakonomics. Yep. You know, this is similar to that in that we're, we're both applying basic economic principles to explain non-conventional things. Yeah, that's fun. Well, everybody, please, please go to Amazon, get on the pre-order for your own copy of Relentless. This has been great, Jerry. Maybe, maybe to end, what's, what's one last principle for business owners who want to get the most when they're selling their company? Be honest. Don't pretend that you got a hockey stick. If you don't, you got to build trust between all the partners, between the prospective buyers and the, and the, the, the employees. You've got to understand what sort of succession planning is there. You know, the big, a big problem I see when people sell the business is if the owner is also a key employee, how do you keep that person in the company and involved through some sort of an earnout agreement? So again, how do you provide these incentives to the key people if you're buying it? Now, it's one thing if you're buying a dentist practice or small business. It's something very different if you're buying a technology company where the founders who are selling are now going to be suddenly so wealthy, they don't want to work anymore. And I'm sure you've seen that time and time again. Well, we, we certainly teach people that if you build a turnkey business before you sell it, right? If you can make this self-managing, if you can make this owner independent before you sell it, somebody's going to be willing to pay a higher multiple for that business of not not right. having the risk of you leaving now ruins their investment, right? Right. Um, so, you know, they're going to try and do that afterwards, or you could make more by just doing it before, and you probably get to leave the job at the same time, right? <laughs> right? right. So that's a that's a great one. Well, listen, thanks for doing this, and and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you for having us and spending all this time with us, and good luck on all of your ventures. I don't know how you you keep them all going. Good teams. That's how I, I only come up with the crazy ideas. I got to have all these other people to actually make stuff work. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you.